Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alien Talk podcast, where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we push the boundaries of our knowledge, where unconventional thinking is just as acceptable as conventional thinking. I am Joe Landry with my co-host, Lori Olford, and the two of us are back after skipping last weekend for Father's Day. Lori, I trust you had a nice day with your family and that your kids made you feel special and proud to be a dad. I know that's how it was for me. I, I had a good Father's Day. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was very nice. They were very uh, thoughtful and all. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so, you, you know, my, my wife got me a little something to show her support for this program. I think you're, you'll like this. Can you see what I'm holding up? What is that? It, is that a toy UFO? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She picked this up at the dollar store. It's a toy flying saucer. And you push this <laughs> button here and it lights up and makes this uh, UFO kind of sound. Here, listen. <laughs> Isn't that neat? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't your father's gift, though, was it? Oh, no, 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 no. She uh, just picked this up for me as a little novelty <laughs> item. Uh, I keep it right here next to me on my desk while I'm doing the podcast. Uh, no, I got other things for Father's Day. Well, well, that sound, that UFO sound, that would definitely uh, frighten my daughter. She's uh, one of them anyway. She's uh, she's uh, very uh, afraid of UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good, man. That uh, Yeah, that's pretty funny. I like it, though. <laughs> well, you should take a picture of it and uh, put it on our Facebook page now. Yeah, you know, I actually already have. So uh, I just thought I would share what my loving wife got me to, to put on the show. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks, honey. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's thoughtful. Yeah. So, well, just so everyone knows, you can uh, follow us now. Um, Alien Talk. Talk that Alien Talk podcast on Facebook and uh, ask Joe and me any questions about the episodes or give us suggestions on topics for future shows. Uh, we look forward to being able to have some dialogue with you all, our listeners. Absolutely. And, and we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning into our weekly podcast. Uh, Lori and I really enjoy sharing these topics with you. Uh, we have a lot of fun doing this and, and, and just having dialogue about these uh, subjects. So today's topic is one that um, some of our listeners may find to be a little bit heretical. I mean, a lot of what we discuss here is considered heretical. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about aliens, but we're also going to get into an understanding of the biblical figures, Yahweh and Lucifer. Now, we're not challenging doctrine. We're not looking into this as a matter of personal faith. Uh, we're looking at what we can find out about Yahweh and Lucifer from the pages of the Bible. And then we will compare that, what we find in the stories of mythology, and do a literary analysis of these character portrayals within the ancient astronaut paradigm. That's it. We're merely asking the questions. Who are Lucifer and Yahweh? Are they the devil and God? Are they the personifications of spiritual forces? Uh, are they actual entities? Is there anything said about them that is meant to be taken in an esoteric or encrypted way? At this point, we're only going to concern ourselves with what we find is written in the text. And we would remind everyone that we have pretty extensive backgrounds in religious thinking. We're not tooting our own horns here, but uh, Joe and I have both spent a good part of our lives being evangelists and apologists. And we spent years listening to sermons of more than one denomination, uh, participating in Bible studies, reading the scriptures, and reading commentaries about the scriptures and theology, and not to mention books and articles about various other subjects that tie into religion. 
And we've looked at everything from within the proper context of culture and history. So we've done our homework on all of this, and we're just presenting what we found to you and asking the question, could this be true? We're not saying we found the answers. We're saying we think what we found is worth pondering, at least. Uh, the answer is almost never so plain as to jump out at you. So by now, we've explained that the stories of the so-called pagan gods from the mythologies of Sumer, Greece, Akkad, Egypt, India, the Zulu, the Aztecs, the Norse, that they are telling of possible interactions with alien beings and alien technologies from uh, some time long ago in the very distant past. Now, the stories are written and told the way they are because the ancient people had no other way of describing what they encountered. And we've also explained that this is the same case with the Bible. Uh, people had no other way to describe what they encountered or what they heard other people saying that they had encountered. So when you read the Bible from start to finish, it becomes pretty obvious that God is not portrayed in a consistent way throughout the books of the Old Testament. And there is even more disunion between how he is presented in the Old Testament and how he is presented in the New Testament. Of course, we know that the Bible is not just one book. It is a compilation of 66 books, 82 if you're a, a Catholic. Uh, Bible comes from the Greek word biblos, which means books. So therefore, we know that it is not written by one author, but by many authors. With the exception of some of the epistles of Paul the Apostle, we really don't have a way to verify the true identities of who actually wrote them. There are no autographed manuscripts, and it was very common back then for such works to be done by anonymous people to then be attributed to other figures of more moral and spiritual authority. When we look at the Pentateuch, we see five books that are traditionally ascribed to Moses, but we know that Moses couldn't possibly have written them, certainly not in their entirety, First, the book of Genesis deals with events that happened long before the time of Moses. So would he, he would have had to rely completely on other sources if he were to have personally written about it or written uh, this manuscript. Second, the end of the book of Deuteronomy mentions the death of Moses. It uh, doesn't seem highly likely that he would be documenting his own death. Now, these first five books of the Old Testament comprise the Jewish Torah. And we see that the character of God within them is very problematic. It's problematic within the entire biblical text, but it becomes even more so when we look closely at the similarities with the Sumerian accounts of Enlil, Enki, and their father An, or Anu. Yeah, the writers of Genesis seem to have intertwined two gods, possibly three or even more, so to speak. Um, in their 5th century B.C. redactions, or they were confused in how they identified God as Yahweh when making him the literary Lord and Creator. Uh, this then became a conundrum for the remainder of the Torah and Old Testament. You know, I, I remember attending a conference as a guest speaker where I had the honor of uh, sitting on a discussion panel, and this topic actually came up. Now, I gave my reasons as to why I believe that Inky was the same uh, personage as Yahweh. But another member of the paddle, panel stated that I, I was wrong and that Enlil was definitely Yahweh. Well, the only evidence he claimed was that he himself was there and that he was actually Enlil incarnate. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sounds like he was nuts. 
Yeah, needless to say, I was I was speechless after after hearing such an absurd claim. Uh, this did not prove anything, of course, and all I could say was, "Okay, uh, I have to disagree on that one." Um, but he also reeked of marijuana, and I assume that may have had something to do with his outrageous statement. Yeah, that may have had something to do with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what do you say to that? Uh, guy tells you he's the incarnation of a Sumerian god. It's kind of hard to top that. I mean, uh, how did that guy get on the panel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, sheesh, man, what what does that say about me? I, what was I doing on that panel? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Good question, though. However, um, I am quite certain, though, that the Sumerian god is indeed the same character as the Hebrew Yahweh. Well, the story of him migrated from one group to another and then became transformed into a new story. But this happened all the time in the ancient world, and we actually find a clue. So look at uh, Strong's Hebrew Concordance, which I know you're very familiar with, mm-hmm. and the, it, it, the etymology of the word YHWH, Yahweh. Uh, in Exodus 20 and 2, when reading Hebrew, which is from right to left, not left to right as in English, uh, God says, I am your God. Well, the I am is anoki, A-N-O-K-I. Now, in Sumerian, an means heaven and ki means earth. Now, Sitchin's interpretation of Anunnaki means those who from heaven to earth came. So if we remove the O from anoki, we are left with anki, A-N-K-I which is very similar to Inki, E-N-K-I. Now, interestingly, in the Ugaritic text, text uh, there are variant forms to Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, of which the Jerome Biblical Commentary expounds upon concerning Israel being given to Yahweh, or to Inki, as an inheritance among 70 brothers from the father god El, or El Elyon, or in Sumerian, Anu. Not so much as brothers by birth, but as in fellow gods, or as in a family, such as Enlil and Inki being sons of Anu. This number of 70 can be interpreted in several ways. But let's remember that in the Anunnaki pantheon, uh, there are 60 members who are more or less family members. The 70 um, could have been a corruption of 60. Yeah, to make it even more obscure. The verses in the Septuagint say that the Most High set the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels, and that his people Jacob became the portion of the Lord. I'm paraphrasing, but the passage here seems to be distinguishing two separate entities with the Most High and the Lord. Uh, their, their sons and daughters would also be called the offspring of Anu, the Most High. And this, and this is much like how we said in a previous episode that the angels are described as the sons of God or the children of heaven. And now it's interesting that you say Genesis intertwines two gods because scholars have actually formulated a hypothesis using strands of scripts, uh, which have been identified in the composition of the Pentateuch. There are four and they are called the Yahwehistic, the Eoistic, the Deuteronomic and the priestly. So these are basically the names of source traditions that have been labeled and have been found in the exegesis of scriptural studies. Uh, There is some contention over this four-strand hypothesis. Some think there are more sources. Some think there are fewer. Uh, Regardless, there are more than one source traditions to be found in the Pentateuch. So let's look at the first two for for now, the Yahwistic 
which seems to originate in the time of King Solomon, 10th century BC, and the Yellowistic, um, which seems to go to the time of King Josiah, 7th century BC. You have to realize this pertains to the original Hebrew text. It is not as noticeable in English translations. What is meant by these labels is that there are passages in which we read about God having a title El, often Elohim, plural, and others where he has the title Yahweh. Yahweh is the proper name of God, or Jehovah in Latin, meaning I am. Like how Zeus and Ra are proper names, it is what he tells Moses in Exodus when asked who he should say sent him to the Israelites in Egypt. He says, I am that I am, in Hebrew, Yahweh. Um, spelled in, in the Hebrew text as Y-H-W-H. El is a more gen uh, general term in Hebrew to mean God or the Lord, not a specific name. It has a more abstract meaning and one that spans the theology of other peoples like the Canaanites, Philistines, Hittites, Akkadians, and of course the Sumerians. Uh, there's a syncretism of El with Anu, um, Ad Adon, El Elyon, El Shaddai, and others. And these are just various names that only generically have the meaning of the word deity. And they're really the same thing in terms of the image within the minds of people, that being God. In analyzing the scripture verses of the Old Testament, we find that the personage, personage of God is sometimes given as like that in the way of El, like in the creation and flood stories, uh, certainly in the Tower of Babel story, as well in conversations he has with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. At other times, he is portrayed as the figure Yahweh, like when he is talking to Abraham, and especially when he is talking to Moses. And in some of these instances, his descriptions are particularly interesting and strange because he is said to be doing things in a way that makes the reader think he is physically present and moving around. When Abraham is sitting at his tent by Mamer, he, sits, he sees three men approaching him, and he knows that it is the Lord. When Moses is in the Sinai desert, he sees the back of God as he passes by, and he catches a sort of sideways glimpse of him in the tabernacle. Again, Elijah is told to stand on the mountain uh, of the Lord uh, as the Lord is about to pass by. And we can't forget about Jacob wrestling with him and grabbing hold of his heel. These theophanies are odd in how they say things about a deity who is supposed to be transcendent. And what we see from this is that even God himself is not uh, original or consistent in the Bible. Likewise, we see that the characterization of Yahweh is not at all unique to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right. So, so Yahweh is described in ways that make you think he is not at all a spirit floating aloft and that he is definitely not invisible. In Exodus, he is plainly seen by all of the Israelites as traveling with them, ahead of, the, of them, from place to place, in either a large pillar of cloud or a large pillar of fire. Uh, he also descends upon Mount Sinai in a cloud which produced smoke and fire, and it shook the whole mountain as it descended. Now, I believe that this description is that of a, a being, possibly many beings, coming into contact with early humans in an extraterrestrial spacecraft upon a mountaintop in the desert for their first contact. So this encounter, along with many others, just does not describe the traditional worldview of the Almighty, nor does it necessarily fall within the understood timeline of events 
laid out in the Old Testament. Here, Yahweh is being depicted with the characteristics of a flesh and blood individual, not an all-knowing or all-present, unseen God. Now, these descriptions of Yahweh and other Middle Eastern deities as well or it reminds me of the 1989 movie, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, when Captain Kirk asked a question to the god of that planet, Chakari, who asked, can this starship take, take my wisdom outside the barrier? And you can see the wheels turning in, in uh, Captain Kirk's head, and he says, well, what does God need with a starship? So if Yahweh is God with a capital G, then why does he need to travel in anything, whether it be a starship, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, or, or anything for that matter? Exactly. Why is the supreme deity and creator of the entire universe, who is believed to be transcendent, imminent, omnipresent, and omnipotent beyond human comprehension, making himself so scary in the way that he appears to the Israelites? I mean, he's really trying to make a point here with physical manifestation and a lot of it. Also, how does he just pass by you as he did with Moses or, or approach you as though he's some uh, kind of shapeshifter and take the form of a human as he did with Abraham? But it gets even more convoluted when we compare him to the so-called idols of the Canaanites who inhabited the promised land before the Hebrews arrived after the Exodus. Uh, there was Baal, a deity who had a personality very much like Yahweh, uh, but he also had a consort, a wife called Asherah. Uh, also a note, uh, similar in pronunciation to Enoki. Um, this is a, a mother goddess, uh, like we find referenced in Akkadian and Hittite text, and is comparable to Ishtar, to the Babylonians, Inanna, to the Sumerians, Ketesh, to the Egyptians, Rhea, to the Greeks, etc., etc. So while a mother goddess or a fertility goddess is found in the other religions of the Middle East, Yahweh demands that only he be worshipped, no one else and no female consort. Yeah, Yahweh is not one to play games with the Adam. So he has a huge ego. He knows that the reason humans exist at all as a species is because of him, because of his genius and benevolence, because of his goodwill. Uh, hence, he didn't want us forgetting that it is he we should adore and not somebody else and also not some knockoff version of him. Which may be why we see him have such an animosity towards the gods Baal and Hadad in uh, 1 Kings 18, 19-40. Uh, yet, according to a 1994 article in Biblical Archaeology Review, inscriptions have been found in southern Israel that link Yahweh with the goddess Asherah, uh, also sometimes called Astarte uh, in the Greek form, uh, two names. And not only that, but there are references to him being the sun, sort of reminiscent of how the Egyptian god Atan-Ra was depicted. So this shows a lot more similarity of Yahweh to the pagan gods than the scriptures seem to suggest. And scholars think that before the notion of him being conflated with God in later redactions, he was basically one and the same with the other patriarchal deities like Baal, like Ptah like Zeus, like Jupiter, like Hadad, and yes, like Enki. So in the political and social movements of the Jewish people after the Babylonian exile, a monotheistic reform became impregnated into the minds of the priests and scribes, being reiterated with the decrees of there being no other gods before Yahweh. By this time, the name Yahweh 
had become considered more or less synonymous, uh, both figuratively and literally, with God, the all-righteous, all-powerful, all-transcendent, the supreme deity, God with a capital G, and the Lord with a capital L. Uh, this became his name, even though the different sources that portray L and Yahweh remained intact in the compilation of the Jewish canon. This, of course, is not given any real consideration by scripture followers, since God's word is God's word, regardless of the four strands. Uh, this claim is the essence of faith, to believe the Bible to be the inerrant and infallible uh, word of God. Uh, could it be that the reason for the strands at all is that separate entities are being written about and are being collectively referred to as God? And let's not forget how differently God is presented in the New Testament. Here he is called the Father, and Jesus is his only begotten Son who came from him to the birth of the Virgin Mary. At this point in time, he is not even given such a name like Yahweh. He is simply God the Father who sends his Son, Jesus, and his intercessor, the Holy Spirit, all part of the Godhead, of course. Uh, there were some during the period of the early church, like Marcion of Sinope, who thought that the God in the Old Testament was not the same as the God in the New Testament, with the former one being a just and punitive figure, and the latter one being much more compassionate and merciful. Of course, this is comparable to the traits we see of Enlil and Enki. Uh, you know, the writers of the Jewish canon actually preserve in the Book of Psalms a snapshot into a polytheistic worldview. In chapter 89, verses 6 and 7, it says, uh, let's see, uh, For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord, Yahweh? Uh, who is like the Lord, Yahweh, among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. The council of the holy ones, the pagan gods had councils, the Anunnaki had council, the Judeo-Christian God does not have a council. He has a heavenly host of angels and saints and also a trinity, but no council. Yeah, angels and saints are not uh, holy enough to be something like God's council. Um, some may believe that they intercede for us in our prayers, but there's really no doctrine that postulates something like a, an Olympian-style council. A trinity, yes, but not a council. Uh, God is thought to be sovereign and absolute, perfection and completion in all aspects and beyond all understanding. A heavenly council serves no purpose in monotheistic orthodoxy. Yeah, and who are these heavenly beings? Um, they must be other gods in order to be referred to as heavenly beings. Uh, what else could they be? Like you said, after the Babylonian exile, the writers of the Torah made Yahweh as the God overall. Now, the angels are also known as sons of God, which doesn't mean actual sons of birth, but are of a special race who descended from the sky along with the Anunnaki of higher status, like Enlil, Inki, Marduk, etc. Perhaps instead of spiritual entities, a more accurate and fitting title for them would be, say, pilots of the ancient skies. So let's consider that, consider that Inki was known in the Babylonian as Ya, uh, which is pronounced the same as Yah, as in Yahweh. It also resembles the Canaanite Yahu. It's easy to see that the book of Genesis has compressed these two deities into one monotheistic God with a capital G. Now, there was a son of Enlil, or Anu, depending on the version, named Yutushamish. 
and he is usually portrayed as an old guy with a beard. He was also the Babylonian god who gave the Code of Amurabi, a list of laws for mankind. This is very similar to how Yahweh gave the Ten Commandments a more simplified list of laws. So Yahweh could very well be identical to Inki, but then again, he could uh, in the same way be identical to Yutushamish, who was called the eternal god of the sun, as well as the god of justice, who is said to be loving and compassionate. This sounds very similar to how the biblical writers tried to depict Yahweh. Regardless, we see all fabrication going on here with humans creating stories about gods from the memories of their contacts with alien beings, most likely from the planet Nibiru. Now, Sitchin attempted at great length to explain Yahweh in the second book of the Earth Chronicle series, The Stairway to Heaven. Also, his niece, Janet Sitchin, um, goes into it in her book, The Anunnaki Chronicles. So they say... Uh, that, that they don't believe that Inki, Enlil, Ninurta, Yutushamish, Marduk, and others were contrived to be Yahweh, and came to the conclusion that Yahweh was actually always God with a capital G. However, I, I disagree with, with the Sitchins here because it seems that he was still wanting to adhere to a belief that the Jewish God was God, the actual God, and not an extraterrestrial of flesh and blood. Now, I took his explanation as though he was preserving Yahweh in mind to be God, the Supreme Spirit, and that answer seems awkward in the context of, of his whole theory. So to me, it seems obvious from his own thesis on the, on the subject that Yahweh is inky. Uh, the notion of the character Yahweh being the creator God of the universe does not match up at all with what we know today about science and history. Yahweh's qualities do indeed fall in place with what we read about Inki, an alien being, but not with that of the Lord as an all-knowing and all-benevolent deity in the way we think of him today. Now, in the Bible, Yahweh walks, he drinks, eats, rests, and he also becomes angry and boastful and jealous. Now, these are all attributes of a being who is flesh and blood, uh, someone like a person, or at least similar to one. It's like the Sitchins, uh, both Zechariah and Janet, just fell, well, fell short of this in their conclusions. Right. Now, let, let's shift to another prominent figure in Judeo-Christianity who is also uh, syncretistic, meaning he carries over from one culture to another, from one belief system to another, and that is the devil. Like God, he is believed to be transcendent, meaning he is not bound by the restrictions of space-time like we are. Uh, just as God, uh, he is all-knowing and all-present. Uh, so uh, he is, at least to an extent anyway, not maybe quite to the same extent as uh, God Almighty, but he has more power than we do. And depending on which denomination or faith that, that you affiliate with, he possesses a degree of power that, that is at least comparable to that of God. Um, some believe he is completely subdued and defeated and confined into hell, yet still able to affect humanity. And there are others who will say he is not yet confined there, and instead he is free to roam with his demon minions and wreak havoc on people. Either way, he is thought of as the embodiment of evil in the Abrahamic religions, and the one who has brought about the fall of man way back in the beginning. Most of the other names we find with Lucifer, like Devil, Satan, Beelzebub, Azazel, Asmodeus, 
They mainly come from later usages in Europe and the Middle East. Lucifer is considered to be the antithesis of God, who is all good. Now, things can get pretty esoteric when it comes to discussing the dogma about the contrariety between God and the devil. But for now, let's just consider his personage uh, in relation to his name, Lucifer. Like the name of Yahweh, Lucifer is derived from ancient linguistics. The Bible is fairly ambiguous on the personification and description of the devil. His character is developed a little more in the Septuagint, but most of our cultural understandings of him come more from church teaching and literary portrayals like what is in Paradise Lost by uh, John Milton. So what is he really? Perhaps the image we have of Lucifer goes back to when humanity encountered the Anunnaki aliens. Yeah, so Lucifer is believed by millions to be the great tempter of mankind um, who brings sin into the hearts of everyone. But if the entity known as Lucifer was created by God, as is believed since God is the creator of all, uh, and to have once resided in heaven, then how could this entity have been full of pride and jealousy, prompting him to instigate an insurrection in a divine and holy and perfect and spiritual abode such as heaven? So this is how ancient writers describe the scriptural tradition of good versus evil. But let's look at this from a different perspective. So imagine an advanced alien civilization arriving on Earth hundreds of thousands of years ago, looking and behaving similar to us humans of today. They had the capability and technology to travel repeatedly to our planet on interstellar missions and eventually intervene with the process of human evolution. So they walked, they they lived um, and walked and communed, dined, and taught our primitive ancestors the ways of science, astronomy, agriculture, and yes, even religion. So like a scene out of uh, a science fiction space movie with intergalactic spaceships blasting one another with lasers and photon torpedoes hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were heavenly battles were fought high above a newly discovered planet. It was Earth, of course and it teemed with life and precious metals. Then, a civilization of giant extraterrestrials manages to exploit the planet and carry out mining operations. But one of them wants to control it on his own and uh, take over as the new supreme commander. So he, he amassed a, a great following to fight on his behalf and overthrow the current leadership. However, he was not victorious in his coup d'etat, resulting in him and his followers being banished from the organizational hierarchy. And then he crash-landed on the surface. Now, this may be where the ancients telling about a cosmic war have misunderstood the story of Lucifer and his fallen angels. And for thousands of years to come, it was told in this way from their memories with their lexicons to a point where a space battle taking place in the sky has become metamorphosed into a spiritual one taking place in heaven. This story, along with others in the Bible, have been repeatedly edited to fit that narrative of religion. Yeah, and the personification of Lucifer or Satan uh, or a force of evil or a, a spirit of evil is again commonplace across most cultures. Uh, consider that long before Islam uh, came into existence in the Middle East, there was a religion called Zoroastrianism that originated in Persia in the 6th century B.C., and in many ways, it actually paralleled Christianity. It presented a spiritual duality, a redemption and savior of mankind, 
named Sayashant, um, a demand for righteous living and ultimate judgment, and, and a worldview that within the universe, God and the devil are in opposition to one another. Uh, only they had different names. The supreme and everlasting God is Ahura Mazda, who is all-wise and all-benevolent, and his adversary is Ahraman, a destructive and rancorous entity. And this is a pretty common pattern of religious thinking, and we see that in all these mythologies. There is usually a lot of uh, animosity among the gods. They don't get along. So the idea of a principal deity who is the prime antagonist against the supreme one is commonly found in most religions. This seems sensible to people back then, as there were constant conflicts among humans, so surely they would expect there to be contention and strife among the gods as well. Uh, belief in the supernatural and things that are otherworldly has always permeated the minds of people to where it is uh, sublimated and unconscious. Uh, the processes that fulfill our normal tendency um, in this way, and they, they're almost like a genetic disposition to believe in something beyond the here and now. Humans are sort of born to want to believe in, in these things that, uh, that they haven't seen for themselves. They have a drive. They, they have a need for faith. Exactly. Well put. Uh, there's a book called The God Gene by Dean Hammer that goes into just that very apostasis. Well, we'll discuss uh, that a little more in another episode, of course. Um, so, you know, the word Lucifer actually comes from the Latin luciferi, a bringer of light. We see in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, yeah. We know that the, the prophet is talking about Hila here, a Babylonian uh, king and son of Shahar. Uh, Shahar means uh, god of dawn in Ugaritic. And he also has a brother, Shalem, which means god of dust. And they are both born of El. So this, this is who Isaiah is talking about. He's not talking about the devil. Uh, Saint Jerome, a priest who lived uh, between 347 to 420 A.D., mistook the metaphor in the book of Isaiah when writing the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible. He fabricated Lucifer as being the morning star and a disobedient angel based on a vile reputation of a heretic priest named Lucifer Celeritanus Keller, of Sardinia. Uh, the identity of this individual later became associated in the textual re redactions of the scriptures to being that of the devil or Satan or the deceiver or even the prince of darkness. It's also interesting to note that Isaiah was likely written between 700 to uh, 686 BC, which was long before any biblical manuscript was translated into Latin. So therefore, we must assume that the word Lucifer was added much later, meaning the original text did not have an antagonist named Lucifer or Satan. And should be noted also that the Isaiah 14 is the only place where Lucifer is actually mentioned. So the myths about him must be based on some other characters, uh, most likely from the Mesopotamian cultures. It says in the book of Revelation that Lucifer's pride and arrogance originated when he was in um, as a resident in heaven and was then cast out. Uh, because our ancestors were limited in their knowledge and vocabulary of such things, 
when witnessing the alien spaceships descending from the sky, they told stories of the gods or angels coming down from the heavens. Uh, they would have no conceptualization of the beings from another planet or flight technology that they exhibited. So they simply did not know how to explain a planet, a star, an alien, or a spacecraft. And the myths they were handed down generations later uh, tell of these encounters in the words they knew how to use. Interestingly, many of the Gnostics of the second century AD actually believed that the God of the Bible, who would, we would know as the creator, was a character they called Yaldabaoth, and that he was not the true God. Um, that one would have been much more superior and much more abstract and, and much, much, much more remote. Um, though not thought of as the devil in the customary way, uh, Yaldabaoth did have Lucifer-like traits in that he was proud and arrogant to the point of not being able to see that there was anything greater than him. Uh, he thought he was the true God, even though he really wasn't, and that there was one greater than him who existed. And as such, he was uh, megalomanic, uh, vengeful, uh, petty, self-serving, and, and not at all divinely perfect. So to uh, the Gnostics, this explained why the uh, physical realm of human existence is, is as flawed as it is, because the one who created it, that being Yaldabaoth, not the true God, is himself flawed. So there was hardly any consistency in, in the beliefs back then about what was going on with these forces of good and evil about God and the devil. Of course, there is also, there is also a parallel in Sumerian mythology with a Lucifer-like rebellion in the story of Alalu, who actually becomes dethroned by Anu as the king of Nibiru. After losing this battle, Alalu was ostracized, and he fled Nibiru for Earth. Uh, his ship ended up crashing, and he was knocked out cold. Now, once he regained consciousness, he exited his ship and eventually discovered an abundance of gold on Earth. And caring about his own world and knowing the exigent circumstances surrounding his planet's survival to replenish its damaged atmosphere, he communicated back to Nibiru to give the coordinates of Earth's position. Now, later, it is said that as he stooped down to drink some water from the stream, he heard a hissing sound. Uh, when he looked up, he saw a snake, uh, being that this was the first time he had seen such a, a creature and did not know what it was. He became afraid and killed it with his weapon. And it is here that we we seen a connection between the gods and the serpent, as has um, as been told many times, as, as in many ways, uh, namely with the conflict between two in the story of the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden. Now, there's another side to this mythology, as more scenes unfold, where Enki, the son of Anu and half-brother of Enlil, was misinterpreted as being the serpent because he was the one providing humans with wisdom. Supposedly, the serpent tempted Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge. And this is where the Genesis authors misinterpreted the serpent as being evil in the garden story. There's a hostility exhibited by Enlil towards Enki. Remember, he's the one who later devised a plan to save humanity from the flood by going against the wishes of Enlil and the other Anunnaki of the ruling council, perhaps the heavenly council that we earlier mentioned, as being in the book of Psalm. He's the one who warned Zeusudra slash Noah to build a boat. So in these Sumerian texts, Enki was lord over the abyss. This was not the abyss as in our current imagination of hell. It was a 
reference to the southern hemisphere of the earth, the lower portion of the world, in the Absu where Enki resided. And the Absu was not at all a dark place. Instead, it was bright and pure with water. So Enki is also depicted as being the lord of many waters in his abode in the middle of the Absu in the lower world, the southern hemisphere in South Africa. You know, it's also important to note that uh, that story of the fall, uh, that the serpent is not directly identified as Satan. It is inferred from textual hermeneutics uh, that as being the wisest and craftiest creature in the garden, that he was using his knowledge to trick Eve and then Adam into eating the fruit that was forbidden by God. It's more or less assumed that the serpent behaving in this way is by Satan as a shapeshifter or else it is uh, being used as an instrument controlled by Satan. I mean, the very fact that the, the snake is able to talk to Eve in the story must mean uh, evil is afoot, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Carl Jung passionately studied the varied symbolism concerning serpents and a Lucifer and evil and wisdom. Uh, he was actually almost obsessed with the psychological relationships among them. Uh, using somewhat illusory me methods, he explained that their meanings found are found deeply hidden in the images of our innermost psyches, uh, such as those related to God and the devil. They represent archetypes that become manifested in the way of dreams, visions, and myths that stem from a collective memory uh, that we all inherit as part of our mental processes. And I think it was in our second episode that we said humans have an innate, instinctual, and somewhat subconscious drive to connect with what our ancestors experienced, to connect with the spiritual. Uh, faith and scripture in the context of religious beliefs are ways to satisfy that drive in that they unveil these images in our minds of a time when humanity was in contact with extraterrestrial beings, i.e. the gods. So uh, I say it's safe to say uh, that uh, Inki is not Satan and that the Absu is not hell. So in Babylonian, Inki is referred to as Yah, E-A, and it is where we derive the word earth. Now, Sitchin described the Anunnaki touching down in what is known now as the Persian Gulf and established the first colony named Eridu, which means home in the far away. And this is how our planet got its name over time from Erd, E-R-D-E, which is German, to Earth, E-R-T-H-E, Middle English, and then Earth. So I postulate that Lucifer has been confused with the Babylonian god Marduk. Uh, he was the son of Enki, lord of the earth, and he is said in the midst to have been full of pride. In his arrogance, he thought of himself as being higher and more superior to the other Anunnaki, including his father Enki. Now, Book of Revelation, chapter 12, 7 and 9, has what I believe to be referencing this ancient battle involving Marduk. And it says, uh, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, in Luke 10, 18, Jesus indicates that he was present when this occurred by saying he saw Satan, assumed to be Lucifer, of course, fall like lightning from heaven. Such semantics make you picture a space battle up above with one of the ships crash landing from out of the sky. 
Now, this is not practical when analyzing the story from a spiritual perspective at all. It only becomes plausible when reading it from the perspective of physical, flesh, and blood characters. Therefore, it could be that scripture is describing martyrdom warring against the others. Since Inki is titled as the Lord of the Earth, then this would make his son Marduk a prince. This is most likely who the Bible refers to when claiming Satan is the prince and power of this world. Um, or, According to the Lost Book of Inki, another work by Zechariah Sitchin, Marduk was considered by the Council of the Gods, the Helloween, get this, to be an evil serpent and had to be banished from the rule of Earth. But but not a not a good serpent though like Inky, right? And of course, the Book of Enoch gets into this whole scene as well with fallen angels having sex with the daughters of men, likewise being banished from heaven. Of course, yeah. There's another facet of this account found in the chapter seven of Enoch. We learn about the sons of God, fallen sons of God, descending upon Mount Hermon from out of heaven as the watchers. Uh, here, their purpose seems to be the betterment of mankind and, of course, to have sex with the human women. It seems less like an epic battle for reign of the universe, as there are only 200 of them. And they're, they're more like to have an objective to teach uh, secret knowledge, special knowledge, like sorcery, alchemy, philosophy, poetry, art, music, in addition to science and mathematics. Uh, plus, they definitely wanted to... Uh, <laughs> hook up with women. Uh, they make that pretty clear, too. Uh, for sure. Well, uh, combining everything together as a whole, it seems that Marduk was the most likely the deity who became the proud, alti, rebellious, and self-absorbed Lucifer slash Satan slash devil, as he was begotten by Inki. Yeah, we find the same uh, mythological theme of defiance, conflict, and trickery uh, with the Greeks and Zeus and his brothers Poseidon and Hades the Egyptians and Osiris and his brother Set, uh, the Norse and Odin and his brother-in-law Loki, the Hindu and Kashyapi and his brothers Vivabashet and Agni, uh, the Chinese and Zerong, the fire god, and Gongong, the water god. And the commonality of, of these metaphors, parables, and, and legends with those of the biblical accounts are, are simply uncanny. And you can't help but wonder if they all didn't come from the same source narrative of events, like alien encounters from back in prehistoric times. Indeed. And with the fundamental and prevailing theme that stands out in all of these mythologies, religions, and texts from all over the world, it becomes more conceivable to support the ancient alien theory rather than the indoctrinated traditional beliefs of the Bible and other holy writs we have today. It is imperative that we re-examine and analyze the scriptures uh, from a more objective, analytical, and logical viewpoint, and that involves a considerable amount of time, study, and examination. True that is. Critical thinking is quite often laborious, painstaking, and time-consuming. But as Socrates once said, true, true wisdom is reached when you uh, realize how little you understand the world around you. So, uh, folks, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, we will not be doing a show next Sunday because our program lineup is going to once again be rudely interrupted by a holiday. As next weekend is the 4th of July. Of course, that means uh, Lori and I will be spending time with our families, having cookouts and parties and, and whatnot. For me, I think I'm going to 
I'm thinking of having a water balloon battle with my grandkids. Well, I hope you plan on having those grandkids pick up all the broken pieces of balloon when you're done. Uh, that should be a part of the deal, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You better believe it. If those little rascals want to get grandpa all wet with water balloons, then they sure as heck are going to clean up the mess on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll join all of you again the following Sunday, July 11th. And Joe and I are essentially going to expound a little more on what we discussed today about ancient astronauts being seen as the powerful deities by our distant ancestors. Uh, we'll cover how they gave law to humanity and how we, uh, being made in their image, were imbued with the capacity for reason, morality, justice, and social norms, all of which have been carried down since the dawn of civilization. Right. And we touched on that today with how laws were commanded by God and the deities of other pantheons. And we see it was given from a position of absolute authority as they made it clear that humans needed to stay in line. If they, the aliens, taught us uh, things like mathematics and science and writing, then they may, may very well have also taught us things like philosophy and ethics and the need for government. So again, that will be on July 11th, nothing for July 4th. For all of those who are listening to us in the United States, we wish you a happy 4th of July and hope you have fun and, and enjoy your celebrations with your family and friends. Please stay safe. Uh, stay peaceful, and most of all, stay curious. Bye, folks. So long, everyone, and have a great holiday weekend. I want to say a happy birthday to my lovely wife, the all-American girl born on this holiday, and we look forward to being with you again on July 11th. Everybody take care now.